Leadership. All my life, I've been fascinated by what makes a good leader. Are good leaders born or made? Can leadership be taught? How do leaders lead if people don't trust to even listen? I grew up in Arkansas. Now I live and work in the innovation heartland of Northern California. During these past years of constant crisis, I've thought more deeply about leadership and what it takes to lead people, especially when trust is in limited supply. That's why I decided to create this podcast and reach out to changemakers from different disciplines to hear what they have to say. As the host of this show, the most important things I can do are two things I learned in medical school, to ask good questions and then listen. Hello, I'm Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, and welcome back to the Miner Consult. It's my privilege to welcome this week's guest, Oscar Munoz, former CEO of United Airlines. Over the course of his successful career as a business executive, Oscar has served as a senior leader at some of the world's largest corporations, including PepsiCo, Coca-Cola, AT&T, and CSX, in addition to United. He's helped shape these companies with his sharp acumen, strong leadership, and personable management style. Known for listening to employees and putting their needs first. I'm sure he has a lot to tell us. Thank you so much for joining me, Oscar. Well, Dean, very very nice to be here. I much appreciate it. I know you grew up in Southern California, your parents having immigrated here. Oscar, can you tell me about your background and how it influenced your life and career? Oh boy, what a um, that's a what a great opening question. That uh, I, I'm such a storyteller, and there's always so many stories to our life, right? And I, I find it's the best way to convey any kind of messages. Uh, you know, I have many influences, of course, but I think predominantly, and the one I speak to, and probably that's most personal and touchy to my heart, and it is the story of my abuelita, my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, um, uh, when I was young. My mom actually left Mexico. I was born in Mexico. She left me in Mexico in the care of my grandmother while she went up uh, and, and joined my, my older uncle, her older brother, who had legally immigrated her to try to make a living in El Norte, as we called it, the North. Uh, and so I spent the formative years up till second, uh, almost third grade with my grandmother alone, uh, sort of going from home to home of different family members in Mexico. And, and, and it's such a wonderful story because as as how it shaped me uh what i learned over her over many years was she ended up being a maid at a large uh a hotel in las vegas at the end of her life uh, she also immigrated here uh, but what i learned about her is in the time that that i was with her uh, and all that she went through and then when she had a, a going away party from her from the hotel chain the amount of people that showed up, not just her peers, at the, but the managers and the people in suits um, and the stories I heard about her background and history really touched me in the sense because I just knew her as my grandmother. We got Mama Josefina was her name. And, and, and what we learned also, she, she, she retired at 86 and passed away at a ripe age of 96. And for her last few years, she was in a, you know, she was in a home and physically her, her ankle uh, and ankles had fused together because of the arthritic condition she had endured for probably 20 years. The, the long story short is never once in the entire time I knew when we were walking the dusty streets in Mexico, trying to you know meet with our next family 
to the many travels we did, to all the trials and tribulations in her life through her physical pain, through this arthritic condition, she never once, and I mean never once, sent the message of complaining. <laughs> I always get a little emotional with this because in my worst days, right, I think of her and what she's gone through and how she never had a bad word for anyone and the incredible uh, sentiments and emotions expressed at her going away function by all these senior leaders that you really learn what a truly special woman she is. And, and uh, the connectedness she had with others really uh, laid for me a grounds to a foundation of how I should act and interact uh, and understand the people that work around me because my situation was different. A, a quick funny story, you know, she was kind of old school. So she would ask me what I was doing. And I think the one time I remember vividly, I was the CFO of Coca-Cola Enterprises. And uh, she asked, oh, she doesn't know what that means, of course. Like, what do you mean? What does that do? She goes, well, I tried to explain the concept of the role of a CFO. And, and if you could see the look on her face, because in her world, right, working, like, let's say at Coke, meant you produced it, you, you delivered it, right? That was work. What I did was sit behind a desk and do whatever I was saying. And she had this knowing, wonderful, but loving and supportive smile, like miho, which is a term of endearment. <laughs> like, well, he must not be so smart if they have him behind a desk. So it was just one of those things that always has kept me grounded onto uh, the person I am. And I think that's the wonderful thing about all our heritage, and particularly for me, for my Mexican heritage, is just knowing her background and her history really makes me impacted. So that was probably one of the bigger influences. And of course, many, many more people that you know show up in your life but i'm sure we can talk about that a different in a different set so your grandmother was certainly as you described an inspiration uh she exemplified the type of values uh that you've brought in your business career as you moved you know in your career as you moved from from your education into the business world who did you seek out as mentors and what were the characteristics of the people who were most impactful in your in the various industries and businesses and companies you were in, they were impactful in helping you build your career and develop your skills and abilities as a business executive. You know, um, to answer the question directly would do disjustice, uh, injustice to the fact of what mentors mean and why people provide you guidance and direction. Uh, there's a there's a great Tennyson quote in this poem, Ulysses, which it says, "I am part of all that I have met." And I just always find that really personal because as I think about all those situations and all the different people that I've ever been through, um, you know, my grandmother is certainly one of those. But in my workspace, somehow, some way, there was always somebody in my life around me, a supervisor, a peer, who took the time and the wherewithal to sort of sit me down apart from everyone else and sort of gently suggest that I might want to do something different. Uh, one of the most memorable ones was an old boss. Uh, I had moved from I had moved from Pepsi Cola to Coca Cola at a very young age for a, you know for a very high role that I took as a very young person, and uh, it spent some few months there. And I'm having my mid year review, and my boss is basically saying all the things you know you're great. I took a chance on you. You've over delivered, exceeded our expectations, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's right. I was feeling pretty good about myself. I think I was 26 or 27 at the at the time, and then I remember this vividly. He he closes the the HR document and sort of pushes it aside and says, uh, in a very gentle, like, you know, now that we got this side, if you don't mind, could we talk just as friends, as people? 
And I'm thinking, because I was an arrogant little thing, so, you know, he probably wants me to date his daughter or something. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he said one of the more impactful statements that has really helped me course correct uh, in my life. He said, you know, Oscar, you're, you're great. You've, you've delivered. You're over exceed all the things he had just said. He goes, but if I had to give you advice more as a friend, um, he goes, and he said the magic words, you're not yet as good as you think you are. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, sitting there, I remember sitting there kind of in shock, like, I'm sorry, that didn't quite sound like I want you to date my daughter. <laughs> and mm-hmm. you could see kind of this spear of, 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 of feedback hitting me in the chest. And, and, and of course, what he meant was slow your roll, buddy. You, you're, you're, you're great and you're going to be terrific. But if you just allow people, and the interesting part about moving from Pepsi to Coke is just like you would think Pepsi is kind of a New York company and Coke is a very genteel Southern Atlanta company. I think the people sort of represented that same thing inside the companies. So it was a lot older people at Coca-Cola than there were in my growing up at Pepsi. And so I tended to disregard what was obviously uh, intellect, experience, knowledge, and importantly, a lot of people's willingness to help your ass out. And I neglected to do that because I was what I call all asses and elbows, right? I'm this young, brash, smart kid. I know how to do all of this stuff. And his phrase, you're not yet as good as you think you are, really, really, it didn't, it did not feel good. And in fact, it hurt. And I went through the seven, you know, seven stages of, of grief, um, eventually accepting the fact that all I needed to do was slow down a little bit and understand. And it really, really helped my career even get on a bigger trajectory. Have you used that, that what you learned from that interaction at the age of 26 that you just described? As you have mentored young people in in your leadership roles, have you had similar conversations, and how have you found that they responded? You know, there's a the answer is of course yes. I mean, we all pay it forward in some way, shape, or form. And you know, I find that feedback, honest, direct feedback, um, sometimes lacks, especially people that are very highly qualified and then moved up to you know they they either moving so fast or leaders are. Uh, not willing to take the time to have that t- type of conversation or, or for whatever reasons, people often get to a very senior level without ever having heard some of those things. Because of that, that, that background, what I, have, I have spoken to many of my teams and I'm almost batting a thousand when I say something to someone, like if you and I were talking, I say, you know, Dean, um, this, this, and this, right? Um, you wear Stanford colors just a way too much. And you should think about USC colors more. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, it's usually something more personal and a dynamic and a human dynamic that you convey to others. It tends to be my focus of feedback. Other than, you know, you're not really smart and you're not really doing your work. That's more, that's more tactical. I tend to understand and observe a person and have a meaningful conversation like what was had for me. And I, I have had so many conversations where people are slightly taken aback. By the way, that is not the intent at all. But sure. it is intense. Sure. Listen, I know people haven't told you. I know you've reached executive vice president and all these levels. But here's a couple little things. And I always add a little thing. Like, don't take my word for it. I said, please go home. Talk to a loved one. Talk to a family member. Talk to someone you trust. And literally start the conversation with a phrase like, you know, I was at work and this crazy new boss I have, this crazy new peer I have you know, said this to me, what do you think? And, and I always say, wait for just a nanosecond and watch and see their reaction. And, I, and I'm telling you, Dean, I think I, 
I think I'm batting a thousand on this one. Never has anybody come back and said, yeah, my wife said you're crazy or my husband said you're nuts. And they've all come back and said, wow, I said those words and my loved one said, well, dear, you know, you could do a little <laughs> more of this or that. And that's when you know you've hit the point. Fantastic. When you became CEO at United, you became only one of nine Hispanic CEOs leading Fortune 500 companies. How do we grow the diversity of leadership in U.S. businesses? You know, it is it is such a um, a topic today, right? And uh, I think in my business lifetime, I am probably seeing more what I call proof, not promise, with regards to initiatives for so long. You know, I think everybody meant well, but there was more lip service and, you know, there was a heightened level of engagement by people and then it just trailed off into everything. And then everybody would talk to each other and say, like, well, you know, company X is doing this, let's do that company. And so everyone would have a structure. So when asked the question about what you did, everybody could, you know, sort of rabble, ramble, rattle off all these things you were doing, but rarely do we talk about metrics specificity specificity mean what is good for my organization and my company and so progression is there i was i was proud of you know corporate america i think the summer that we had with regards to the racial unrest uh, i was you know we were a part of the pandemic and we are also having this issue and the business roundtable the the uh, association of ceos and business council our conversations at least once a week were about one of those two topics and the meaningful nature upon which corporate America undertook to really understand. And so you've seen, you've seen African-American directors and boards rise to almost 28% uh, from their 12, 13% population. Uh, you've seen Hispanics, Latinos go from two to 4% despite our 18% part of the population. So we got much work to do. So that's been going on. My advice, my counsel on all these fronts, because um, I think the usual uh, the usual conversation that you have is like, no, we really believe in that, you know. But Oscar, we just can't find someone. We don't have the we don't see that. You no, know, we're creating the pipeline and we're starting to do this. And I think, of course, that's part of the equation. Here's my advice and counsel that I give, and I use myself as an example. Most boards, especially meaningful boards in corporate in America and corporate big companies. They already have a well-established, incredibly well-respected and experienced group of board members at 10, 12, 14, different numbers. There's always an opportunity for one board member to be younger, less experienced, and can learn from all this wisdom that's already in the room. And I say, don't wait for someone to become a former CEO to put him or her on your board well, you know, because they're, they're underrepresented, a minority. Uh, there's a chance to take it. So I, I was brought onto the Continental Board at a very ripe age. I had my first job as a public company CFO, and I met with them, and they brought me on. And the board was filled with all of this great talent. And so for a period of time, I, you know, learning from my friend Mike Bell 100 years ago would just kind of, you know, slow roll it. I just sat and learned from folks, and I became a better board member. Inevitably, I became the CEO of the company, interestingly enough. But again, it all started with the opportunity and taking a bit of a chance on someone that maybe quite hasn't accomplished everything you want them to accomplish. And again, I don't ask for boards to, to, to uh, take down their standard in any way. I'm just saying you already have a high class blue chip board. It's okay to let someone in. And I think that's a great way to grow talent and take the initiative as opposed to waiting for all the right things to fit into place. 
based on your decades of experience, what advice would you give to rising executives from underrepresented backgrounds who aspire to leadership roles? You've you talked some about the advice you got as a 26-year-old, uh, but in general, what are the principles you would suggest that, that they keep in mind? You know, I, I am very uh, frank and direct on this topic because I think too many people provide um, more broad platitudes of sorts um, that are meaningful and probably have value uh, but you also have to understand that even today, in this day and age, with all that we know and possess and information that's in front of us, um, bias, racial bias in particular, sexual bias to some degree, uh, still exists. I see it. I travel in a lot of very elite circles. I'm with people in their quiet moments when there's no one around. I hear it. I see it. I feel it. And so it still exists. It's not as obvious and it's not as apparent, but it is indeed happening. It's a fact. People are working on them on that. Um, so that's that's happening. Um, the the aspect of, of what I tell folks in underrepresented minorities is that understand that it's out there, and because it's out there, we can all stand and and, and yell and scream that you need to pay attention to me more, give me more. Or you can do, to some degree, what I and many others in my generation, including yourself, have done. Um, just work and work hard and, 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 and do the right things for your peers, for the people above you, and then hope there's somebody in your leadership group that says, hey, there's a very talented human being. It happens to be a she. It happens to be someone of, of a different color. It doesn't matter. But what they're witnessing is the clarity. I, I live this next phase of my life to enrich others by proving to them proving the value of human diversity is in and actually in its output, not just doing it and just saying, well, I have somebody that happens to be this or that. And so for, for the people, um, there was a, one of the first African-American uh, pilots at United, a guy named Bill Norwood, wonderful person. He said a long time ago, he grew up in, uh, in Alabama, um, in segregation Alabama a long time ago. And he said, you know, the fact of the matter is that we have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Um, and I always stuck with that when he told me because it's like, you know what, I'm always going to work twice as hard, but damn it, if I'm not going to help people get further than half as far. And, and there's a degree of personal ownership in our lives, especially in our younger community. Hey, life sucks. There's going to be a lot of unfair things, whether it's racial bias, whether it's a thousand other things that people are going to hold against you. Um, one thing you can do for yourself is focus, do your work, do it well, don't expect handouts. And, and through that process, you will enrich your life and the lives of your class in a lot of ways. I, I, am, I am often referred to as the first Hispanic. I get all these, you know, these uh, laudable mentions of being what is indeed the exception, right? There's the one person that's like, well, hell, I don't want to be the exception. I don't want my next generation of my cohort or any cohort to be the exception, but rather to have those younger people drive this emotional thing that says, you know what, I don't want to be, the, I want to be the expectation, you know, that people expect someone to be, you know, to be a doctor, to be an astronaut, to be a CEO. That's great. Switching gears to your time at United, you famously began uh, your tenure as CEO with a listening tour, visiting employees all over the country, all over the world. And can you share more about that experience and what you learned from listening to your, uh, your new cohort of executives and employees? <laughs> um, you know, the, the premise for that listening tour is, is twofold. One, it is 
a little bit of a vestige for my grandmother, right, uh, and my heritage. Um, we just, as a family, we just didn't dive into something. We always asked somebody how they were feeling and why they were feeling it. So I learned that from a personal perspective. And, and from a business aspect, and uh, this is a lesson for us all, uh, especially taking over United in its state that it was, because you know, people were disenfranchised, disengaged, disillusioned, and we were performing badly on every metric you could possibly measure a corporation by. Uh, and so it's easy to say that in high notes, but you know, all of that was true. And what I've learned in all my life, and it's not the first turnaround that I've gone through, the key to a, a good turnaround story is that you begin with the right thing. What is the foundational issue that you're gonna work on first upon which everything else can sort of build upon? Because there's never a shortage of things that are wrong. There's never a shortage of people giving you advice as to what it, what might what you might fix first, right? I was surrounded by reams of analytics and consultant documents and my leadership saying, well, Oscar, here's what we gotta fix. No, we gotta do this, we gotta do this. And it was disparate as you can imagine which is what led me to the importance of this listening tour. In my first earnings call, everybody's like, what are you gonna do, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna fix this, are you gonna fix that? And of course, customers want specific things. You know, the financial community certainly wants things that, hey, are you gonna make more money? And you know, I walk in out from sort of outside the industry, say, you know what? I'm not exactly sure, but give me 60 to 90 days and I'm gonna go find out exactly what ails us. And I'm gonna do it from that ground level. I'm gonna talk to the people that actually provide you, the customers, the service that provide the safety that's provide all, and, so, and I'm going to listen to them. And and, and and part of my mind says, I can't believe I'm saying this because I'm going to have to go out there and I'm going to have to figure something out because you're going to get a lot of things. And, and, and so that was the, the genesis of that listening tour. Uh, I dub it, listen, learn, and then only lead after that. And it's, you know, it sounds trite, but listening requires a level of listening that you've never heard. The learning part is, you think you've heard something, go back and ask again, and you'll learn that it's not exactly right. All the, all the communication things we've all learned in business school about how to do that, you have to really employ them. And by the way, in a genuine way. So the side story and the meaningful story, and I think the story that really, I think is the, 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 the bedrock of United's big turnaround story was, so after 36 days of doing this, and I'm talking like 24 hours a day, I mean, an airline never yeah. stops. So I had more pizza at two o'clock in the morning with teams and <laughs> I have stories, you know, we're, we're writing a book and I'm telling many of these stories about those early days, but the, where it really culminated, I'm heading back to Denver. I mean, I'm, I'm heading back from Denver to California, to uh, uh, Chicago. And uh, my, my style of asking questions, is not very particularly, uh, it's, it's not based on any, you know, anything other than I'd walk up to you and say, how you doing? Like, what's up? And sure. how you doing? So it just, it, I just, I, I want a meaningful, you know, what, what is really, there's no really long question. And uh, the flight attendant that was on my flight, uh, when I turned, the, she was in the galley and I turned to see her and I said, hi, I'm Oscar. She goes, I know who you are. I said, I'm just, I know what you're doing. And I said, and before I said anything, she broke down in tears and she said the magic words that will forever live in United lore. She said, you know, Mr. Munoz, I'm just tired of always having to say, I'm sorry. And it was profound in the sense, because for 36 days, I'm freaking out. I've learned everything I've, I've got in my mind and in my notes. I mean, a gazillion, even more things than I had before. How am I going to dissect this? How am I going to convert this into something that's thoughtful that I can lead the company with? That was the culminating moment because I was like, oh my God, that's it. 
We, yeah. you know, I'm sorry, we're not on time. I'm sorry, we have bad coffee. I'm sorry, Wi-Fi doesn't work. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, right? We weren't giving our very own customer, our very own employees, the tools and the wherewithal to actually make their lives and the lives of our customers better. So that all led in a lot of long stories to the concept of our North Star became regain the trust of our employees as the first thing. Now, employees were like, yes, that's my man right there. He gets us. <laughs> Customers are like, what the hell? And I won't even tell you about our investors, right? Because they're like, whoa, wait a what does that mean? That doesn't mean like we're going to fly more places and make more money. That sounds like you're going to spend it. But it was the right thing to do, and it was the right foundation that launched what ended up being what it was United, the new spirit of United, as I've dubbed it. That's such a revealing comment, and it, it says everything, doesn't it? I'm just tired of having to say I'm sorry. Then how did you get from – and certainly that was the, the ethos that, uh, that you emphasized in the, in the turnaround, but how did you get from that into actionable plans uh, to improve operations and the other things that, that have been talked about and written about so much – uh, because of the foundation you established. So how did you make that transition from, from listening and from getting the ideas and from seeing that there was a yearning to be a better organization to actually implementing it and, and, and leading to actions? Uh, again, a, a long story. I'll be as brief as I can. So certainly once you think you have an idea about where it's happening, from a leadership perspective, the first thing is to get others to think and feel the same way. And by influencing, not by telling, by suggesting and providing fake facts and data and letting them come to the conclusion rather than by telling. So that was going to take a little bit of time. Unfortunately, as soon as I started that process, because on the 37th day of my work, when I got back to Chicago, I suffered a nearly fatal heart attack that we can talk about separately. So I had to take a little bit of a hiatus for, for a few weeks and then uh, had a heart transplant that came back. But again, right before I got my heart transplant, I had my leadership team together and we were talking about this very subject, not only my findings, but their views. As I interviewed the, the, the people at the, at, the, uh, at the ground level, I was now in effect interviewing all my senior executives at a, at a three-day strategy event. Uh, and as part of that process, uh, we were asking the same question. And in a, in a weird turn of events and fate and, and, and I don't know what else you might call it, uh, on the day that I got a call that I, there was a heart, a new heart ready to replace my old one, uh, the evening before we had come to a conclusion about this concept of regaining the trust of our employees, and then the next morning uh, we talked about it and the executive senior team decided, you know, determined that, yep, that's exactly what we have to do. So my job was sort of done to, to answer your question. And then I, I, I did some famous speech as I left at lunch. I said, hey, guys, I got to go to the hospital. There's this thing I've been waiting for. And I remember saying, I'll see you on the other side as a kind of a flippant comment. And then looking back on it, realizing the double entendre, it's like, well, which side, right? Because I could have easily gone off into the, <laughs> into the, uh, into the next life, so to speak. Um, but so the, the, the premise behind that is, you know, once you think you have the idea, allowing others to do that. And then more importantly, once the senior team got behind it, that we were going to regain the trust, it was, it was really an easy concept. It's like, let's go out to our employees and listen to them. You listen to them and let's see where, how we can regain trust. I have great stories. Our CFO went to a place and they were, they, they didn't have a lot to say other than, you know what? We've been asking for a small refrigerator 
for our break room to put our food in while we're working all day. Well, Jerry Latterman, our CFO, went out himself to some store and bought a small refrigerator, brought it himself in that day, didn't expend, it was just here. And so many stories like that, obviously with much major, more impactful situations of investment, but nevertheless, that's how it regained it. The beauty of all of that is once you get everybody behind you, you don't have to go put specific tactical or strategic thoughts. These people whose hearts now, we've captured not only their hearts and their minds, well, now they're ready to go to work. They have the North Star. They know what we're headed for. Oscar, can you describe your experiences having suffered a major heart attack and then a heart transplant? What advice do you have? You've been very active in the American Heart Association, other organizations, uh, talking about your experiences and encouraging others uh, to do the right thing. Can you tell us about that? Sure, I'd love to. I think it's uh, it's an important message that I give to others uh, because it, it, it can help save lives. And I think it's an important issue. My personal story uh, as a triathlete, a marathon runner, vegan on top of this, I found myself at least um, eating healthy and exercising, uh, obviously le- 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 leading a very, a very busy life. But uh, one fateful morning, um, I, uh, I suffered uh, something that I couldn't describe at the time. And when I go back in time, one of my partners in running is a cardiologist. And he'd always tell me, us, this group of us, this very simple story. He says, you know what? Some of the youngest and fittest people are the ones that die on my operating table, which I thought was a little dramatic. And then his point would be, it's like, you can't, a heart attack can happen to anyone, right? It's DNA. It's not just how you look. It's not because you're heavy. It's not because of your lifestyle. There's so much internal plumbing that could be easy. And then he added this phrase that says, you know, if you ever feel anything weird, and you use the term weird uh, in your body, you know, immediately call 911. Um, you know, it may be indigestion. It may be anything. And the worst thing that can happen, you know, it's one of those things. But, you know, he says, but when you reach 911, he says, immediately tell them where you are, which I remember thinking, it's like, duh. I mean, what else would you do? And he goes, but he said, because you may not make it past the phone call. And I remember vividly thinking, wow, that was really dramatic. His name is Mark. Um, and so that was in the back of my head. So back to this fateful morning, I had gone out for a quick run. I was back in my apartment by myself on the 48th floor of a Chicago high rise, making my vegan protein shake. I heard my phone buzzing across the room. And as I walked to get it, my legs sort of gave out and I reached for a counter, held myself up. And I remember saying in my head, wow, that was weird. And the phone, of course, kept ringing. And as I sort of went again, my legs completely gave out for me. And I felt a little clammy. And his words came rushing back to me. I found my landline, for those people that know what that is. Uh, and I dialed immediately 911. And I immediately told them where they were. Because, again, being on the 48th floor of a high rise, your cell phone is not going to tell them enough of the information that you need. And so, um, long story short, uh, so many wonderful you know, miracle moments the EMTs were literally outside returning from another trip. So they were pulled in immediately. Within 38 minutes of them getting me and, and sending me to Northwestern Hospital, I was on life support. Uh, I, was, you know, I was in a, a medically induced coma. Uh, if I had had five more minutes to live or 10 minutes, nobody will ever know. But I was one of the worst cases that have ever reached those folks. And, and so um, my PSA, for lack of a better term, is if you feel something weird, don't feel afraid to go call someone 911 because it may indeed actually save your life. And, and uh, so thank you for allowing me to say that because I think that's an important thing. And again, 
I get letters and notes from many people still to this day, people stopping me at the airport, some in tears saying, you have no idea how much that meant to our family. So for all of you listening, just remember that particular piece. And there's wonderful new uh, technology and tools and medication. I, I am a personal investor and supporter in a company called Clearly and Dr. Min, who hopefully someday, uh, Dean, you'll have on your program because um, uh, the, you know, all great paradigms for big disease have, have moved from being invasive to non-invasive, right. uh, whether it's mammography, CT lugs, lung scans, uh, and, and so on. Uh, he, I think he's built something that might indeed help prevent um, this heart disease deaths that we all experience. Largest killer in America. Absolutely. Thank you yeah. so much for that. I know that's very meaningful advice for all of us, and uh, hearing it from you makes it particularly meaningful. So day 37, uh, the heart attack. You stayed with United, and United stayed with you. What what does that say on, on both sides? It, clearly, in, in the 36 days that preceded it, you had earned a tremendous amount of trust and respect from uh, from the employees because of what you were you were doing, um, and um, and and they it, it seems that they afforded you that that opportunity that trust you know d- during your illness and you demonstrated to them that you were with them. I mean, it, it wouldn't many people might have decided well perhaps I should do something else, um, and yet as you've described, you remained very active. Um, even before your heart transplant um, and, um, and certainly afterwards, uh, but you stayed with the company and built the vision. How did that feel personally? Um, and, and how did, did those around you come together to really embrace the vision that you'd begun to structure during those 36 days prior to the heart attack? You know, I, I don't know that I have a good answer for how people came to embrace it because I think it's such a personal decision for a human to feel part of something and make the personal commitment to say, you know what, I'm going to be part of this as opposed to be a detractor. And so clearly we established that thing. Uh, while I don't recommend having a nearly uh, a fatal heart attack and a subsequent heart transplant to motivate the troops <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. No. Uh, you know, and, and my, uh, in my farewell letter to my United family, I, I think my closing line was something like, you know, I came here to change United, but at the end, United's people changed me. And the most poignant story for me is when I was, you know, when I went into the hospital and I was in my deathbed and recovering, the, uh, the, the correspondence, the letters, the flowers, the food uh, that were flowing to my apartment because nobody knew where I was because kind of I was hidden from public view for a lot of different reasons uh, were incredibly warm and touching. And again, made even more touching by the fact that I had only been there 36 days. You were executive chair of United during the first year of COVID-19. Um, when people stopped flying and there were enormous challenges to your industry, perhaps more to your industry than, than almost any other. And how did the culture that you'd built in the company help sustain the company through that period? And can you describe the approach to decision-making? Because clearly there were lots of difficult decisions that you, the CEO, and other leaders in United had to make during that period where uh, air travel was markedly diminished in the country and in the world. Yeah, I think to put it in context, you know, 9-11 was obviously a major uh, crisis and issues in the uh, aviation industry. COVID will end up being 
probably five, maybe even close to 10x the impact. Our business dropped 90, 93% in the first couple of weeks. And you know, the, the obvious, it's funny because there's crises and then there's, um, there's emergencies. Uh, this one was for us, because we do, we do things like this in the aviation industry every single day, right? There's always something breaking somewhere. So first of all, we had a good early sense that this might happen because when the outbreak in North Italy first hit, that was proximate to the U.S., right? Something in North uh, South Korea, something in China, that, you know, Americans were like, yeah, that's, that's, you know, that's nowhere near us. Italy, that's a lot closer to home. And what we saw immediately is our bookings, people buying tickets, and our load factor, people that actually get on the aircraft, drop to nearly zero. And that, our team immediately sends, it's like, this is going to hit the United States quicker than we think, and people are going to stop flying. We need to start making flying. So we immediately went into like a tactical war room. We shut down spending. We immediately went out into the bond market and debt markets to get money to some forces because we knew with no revenue, it was going to be a matter of attrition on your, on, your, on your checkbook, right? How much cash do we have? How much cash we're burning? And then begin. So we began before anybody else to really work through that. Um, the next decisions were to how do you treat the employees? You know, how do you do it? Keep, you know, you keep exposing people to this issue, right? Because, you know, we're there, we're in airports and people still have to fly medical supplies, medical professionals. And so it was a difficult situation as to how to stage our workforce. So indeed, the business of recovery could happen both economically and from a medical perspective. So those were decisions. And then um, even beyond that, I mean, we really got into a point of, 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 convincing the U.S. government, the Trump administration at the time, that, A, this was real and it was going to have a broader impact and that the government had to do something to make sure that aviation employees could still stay active so that if, the, if we recover, if, if this ended quickly, we could recover quickly. And so there's a pretty famous picture of me in the cover of the New York Times with my hands spread out like this in front of President Trump explaining the concept that says, you know, this is going to hit us harder than anything we've ever seen. And we need to start taking and making plans to change our behavioral issues. The concept of masking, the concept of no handshaking, the concept of all of that, as we were talking about that earlier. And so, you know, so many learnings, so many thoughts, so many work, working with our government, working with our unions who are incredibly supportive. This whole conversation we've been having about how we capture the hearts and minds of our employees embedded in some of those stories is how we regain the trust of our unions. When we needed them during this particular point, they came out in droves to support the fact that we needed, uh, we needed to help with funding to keep aviation open for when the recovery would come. And again, a real quick aside, you can't put a pilot away and then ask him or her to work, fly a month from now. They have to stay constantly trained for safety reasons. So if you send people home without any kind of thing, it would take, in essence, a month to two to three months to get us flying again, which would limit an economic recovery and all that. So that was the basic premise of the argument with what it was then became called the CARES Act. That's great. Well, people are flying and traveling again. Um, I can say that from having recently uh, traveled, and which is great. The industry is recovering. One downside has been we're seeing more bad behavior uh, among customers and that's affected uh, frontline employees of your airline and others uh, in really horrific ways. How do you build support for the safety of the people who are in contact with 
your employees who are in contact with the public every day. And what do you think is driving this, uh, uh, this these outbursts that we're seeing and have been so well publicized? You know, um, and both of us and everyone listening to this podcast will have very views and theories on what's what's causing this sort of behavior because it's not just on aircraft, right? Crime is up in major cities, murder in particular. Um, you know, the divide in our nation and the way our politicians, you know, all of those things are all part and parcel to the estate. I always worry about that. Uh, I, I read somewhere a long time ago that all great civilizations first fall apart from within. And I've always worried about Western civilization beginning to affect that in our, in our country being specific. But that's a whole other different subject. Why people are doing it, there's many reasons. There's frustration. There's political divide. There's different views on masking, on COVID, on vaccines, on pretty much everything. So I think that got some people fired up in some of those cases. But frankly, there's no room for it on an enclosed place. And, and uh, as an industry, we've always, always, um, I, I think, valued ourselves for competing fiercely on so many fronts, but never on safety, never on safety. We are never going to say, you know, you know, um, you know, the Dean's airplane is not quite as safe as my airplane uh, because that hurts the entire industry. Right. It's like, who do I believe in sure. all that? And so I think the industry came together, first and foremost, if you don't wear a mask and, and you're belligerent about it and you get kicked off my aircraft and my airline, you can't go to the other airline either because we all banded together to say, any one of you kick yeah. anybody off and put on the no-fly list, you don't fly on any of these aircraft. Just that solidarity, yeah. I think, was important. As you know, I started this podcast to delve more deeply into the subject of leadership and learn the perspectives of innovators in a wide range of disciplines. What do you think are the most important qualities in a leader today? You know, it's, it's such a, we're always talking about all the different things that people say, but for me, and again, this is my view, it is my style, and therefore it is my, uh, it is my uh, opinion, nothing more. Uh, and it's the things, dependent on the company that, in the, that you operate, and mine is very people-centric, right? We have, uh, when I started, 100,000 people in the, around the world, uh, distributed workforce, meaning I don't have a factory floor with everybody in one place you can address. It, there's so much interaction that has to happen one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-many. And so um, what I have found that, that's been useful for me is the concept of empathy, the concept of humility, and, and certainly authenticity. Because I think those are phrases that people use. And, and, and you know, another human being knows when you're not being you know, you're being disingenuous. Sure. It's like, oh, dude, tell me about what your feelings are. Then we're like, we're looking around and moving around. This concept of listening is a really important one because people know when you're actually really listening. So, so understanding, empathy, humility, putting yourself kind of same place, and then an authentic nature, I think is always, I think, can be proven. Now, acumen, smarts, drive, you know, sometimes you got to have a little sharp edge to all of those things are all applicable. But I mean, I think more importantly, it's important that we find who we are as a person and show that person to others. People will always follow you in that regard when they know you're genuine and authentic. And so that's, that's my great. thoughts. Yeah. Very helpful. In closing, what gives you hope for the future? You know, listening to my kids and their generation and the generation that's coming above, you know, they, they really want to belong to organizations that aren't just profitable, but are principled as well. Um, and, uh, and I've always said that, you know, at United, we are profitable because we were principled in so many ways. 
uh, and now uh, we see all these headlines about intolerance and racism and hatred. Um, you know, most most young people under 30 or whatever, they take for granted that a company is going to act ethically and stand up for values. And importantly, they I see a lot of, you know, uh, hand-holding as we walk into the future and hand-holding with someone next to you that's actually very different than you are, grew up differently, looks differently than you, has a whole different view on life. But you know what? I, I, I appreciate you. I see you as a human. So I see diversity. I, I see my kid, my boys in their fraternity and the incredible mix. You know, I grew up at a time where I was by far, again, back to the exception, the only brown kid in my, you know, my fraternity at USA. Uh, because that's all, that's only people that participated in that. I see so much togetherness and so much focus and so much more um, appreciation and expectation that companies indeed will be ethical in their value. And so uh, that's what gives me hope because I think, you know, slowly but surely we're building a future that's going to be a, a wonderful, a wonderful set of human interconnected humanness in this global sphere that we operate in. Oscar, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's insightful discussion with business maven and former United CEO Oscar Munoz. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for episodes, updates, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind. Be kind.